Hello, my friends, and welcome to Take Me to Eternity, where I look at what's coming into the church through a biblical lens. I pray today finds you well. Um, I'm going to talk about a difficult topic as usual today. Um, Last time, I did one on yoga, and this is going to be, you know, something that links very closely and is very related to that topic. Today, I am going to talk about the kundalini and occult practices. I'm going to do this in two parts for a reason. Um, In this part, we're going to be touching on chakras, meditation, and yoga from a perspective I didn't really get into last time in my yoga episode, though I said it would be coming. We will focus on the kundalini yoga and what the kundalini spirit or energy is and what the manifestations look like. Um, Next time, we will be looking at kundalini in the church or the false spirits that we are seeing manifest in our church. So it's very important to lay this baseline down. So strap in. We are in for a long ride. There is a lot to say on the subject, so let's jump right in. Like I said, I look at everything through a biblical lens to see what the Bible might say about these things or what we can deduce about a topic by what we know through scripture. Even though God never mentioned the kundalini, there is a ton to look at um, that can speak to how to view it and what to do with these so-called manifestations. We see in the hyper-charismatic New Apostolic Reformation churches a lot of manifestations, or what would be said to be a manifestation, that looks an awful lot like the ones in other cultures and religions around the world. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If the Bible is our highest authority on what to believe to be true and right, it's our plumb line, then we need to look at it to see how we can test the spirits. We are told in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So that is what we're going to do today. We are going to examine it by the word of God. We know that we are to test the spirits by what the Bible says and how the Bible says spirits manifest and tells us what the fruits of the spirits are. We have to look at what the Bible says in order to see where they come from, though. In the Bible, it describes the fruit of the Spirit as being, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It also describes the fruit of the flesh. The fruit of the flesh is, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you. Just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5 19 through 21. That's what that was. If you look, it's the dichotomy, the difference between the two spirits. If we are either a child of God or a child of the devil, we can see the fruit that will come from either one. 
We can test the spirits by evaluating the way that they manifest by this criteria, amongst other things. The Bible also says that Satan and his minions can come as angels of light. What would that look like? That could look like something good and pleasing, something we would think helpful. It could look like those of his sheep, or even be disguised as the Holy Spirit himself. So this episode's going to be titled, Kundalini in the Church. Instead of starting off by defining Kundalini, I think we need to start off not by defining it, but first by defining chakras. This may seem like a rabbit trail, but it really isn't. It goes perfectly with my episode on yoga, so if you want to know more about yoga after this, you can go check that one out, or you can stop this one and go look at that one first. If you've already listened to that episode, then that this is just going to expound on it hugely. You'll see why as we go. Chakras are said to be various focal points used in a variety of ancient meditation practices, collectively denominated as Tantra or the esoteric or inner traditions of Hinduism. You know the pictures of the different colored spots on a meditating person? That's what we're talking about. The ones that go straight from its pelvis all the way up through the top of the head, um, that's what we're talking about. The concept is found in the early traditions of Hinduism. Beliefs differ between the Indian religions, of course, with many Buddhist texts mentioning five chakras, while Hindu sources offer six or even seven, which is interesting to me because Buddhism stemmed from Hinduism. It's always funny when they like take something and then they tweak it to make it how they want it to be. Early Sanskrit texts speak of them both as meditative visualizations, combining flowers and mantras and as physical entities in the body. Within Kundalini Yoga, the techniques of breath exercises, which are meant to help you relax to open up and help energy flow. Visualizations are meant to help empty your mind, to help you see that you don't have limitations. Mudras, which are said to be sacred hand and body symbols, and postures as a means to channel the flow of vital life force energy known as praha. The word literally in Sanskrit means gesture, mark, or seal. That's according to yogapedia.com. It's super creepy when you think about these postures being known as a seal or a mark. That is the postures that you are doing when you're doing yoga. Um, It just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Ephesians 4.30 says, We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption as believers. So for another religion to say that what they are doing is sealing themselves to a different spirit is really creepy. Especially since yoga literally means union or yoke. It's to be yoked to or united with, quote-unquote, the divine. So, demons, because it's not worshiping God. I know this seems roundabout, but it helps establish what we're talking about, as you will see when Kundalini is defined. Yogapedia explains bhanta as practicing bhanta, or what they call locks, involves concentrated muscular contractions. It's controlling movements, muscles, and breathing to trap and move an energy in your body. So they're trying to move this energy um, through your chakras. 
The four bandhas are movements done to awaken the individual's kundalini power. Kriyas and mantras are focused on manipulating the flow of subtle energy through chakras. They are concentrated muscular contractions, and when you're reading about them, they're often uncontrolled, like kriyas, so like jerking, convulsions, spasms. There are many videos of people who have awakened, quote-unquote, their kundalini. They twitch, shake, and jerk, and make breathy grunts, much like we see in hypercharismatic circles when they say, quote-unquote, Holy Spirit is on them. When people say Holy Spirit and not the Holy Spirit, they often also talk about him as a force more than a person. Um, it, it makes it impersonal, and it makes it more of a power source, which is what we see in Je Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff like that. Each posture in yoga is intentional and focused on allowing an energy force to flow through you. They do these poses to honor their gods and open themselves up to be taken over by their force energy. They want to be able to use it, and um, they want to be powerful. The thing is, we don't have to help the Holy Spirit. So what spirit or energy are you trying to allow to flow through you? So in the beginning, this was only a spiritual practice. The psychological and physical quote-unquote health benefits weren't added until later. Nadi is considered to be like a tube or a pipe. It's a term for the channels through which the energies, such as prana of the physical body, the subtle body, and the casual bodies are said to flow. Again, don't get caught up in these um, names and stuff. I, I just am trying to give you an idea of the framework of what we're talking about. Within this philosophical framework, the nadis are said to connect at special points of intensity, which are the chakras. It is what the kundalini travels through as it moves in you. I'm using those, these words because if you hear them, now you can better associate them um, and understand what they're meaning and why they're used in the kundalini de definition. But we're almost there. Okay, we're almost to the kundalini. Just bear with me. The three principal nadis run from the base of the spine to the head. Ultimately, the goal is to unblock these nadis to bring liberation. I want you to hold on to that idea. The ultimate goal is to unlock these pathways to bring liberation. Liberation from what? That's coming. I talked about this in the yoga episode too. So the nadi is like a pipeline from the chakra to chakra for energy to flow through. I keep saying prana, and so I should tell you what this definition is. It originates from Atman, um, or Brahman. It means to breathe forth. It says it refers to the idea that vital or life force energy is always dynamic or constantly changing and moving. It says it flows in and out of the body through breath and performing as asanas, which are what the poses in yoga are called. Um, it can help it flow more freely. So we're talking about an outside power source or energy that they are trying to get to flow through them freely. Um, creepy. Atman is said to be your true self, the divine self within. 
but it's also an external energy which they call Brahman or an ultimate energy source. That is depending on which religious philosophy you look at. So this is talking about divine energy, demonic energy, like doing these things will open you up for a quote-unquote God energy to dwell in you, flow through you, work through you, empower you. There's so many things that we see when we look at other religions and what they do that is like a cheap knockoff of what God does, right? And it's like we are made to want certain things, to know that we're supposed to have certain things, and um, it's people finding those things through any other way other than God. One thing that you'll see through this is the word liberation. Moksha, or liberation in Hindu practices, and the New Age essentially leads to liberating yourself from a false idea of self, and either realizing the God inside, or being liberated by a God inside. Richard Rohr talks about this. If you don't know who he is, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, he's a Franciscan priest who calls himself a Christian and is not. That being said, you know, I mean, he's pushing Hindu practices in the church and he's pushing um, occult practices in the Enneagram, which I mean, it's all occult practices, truthfully. But um, just beware of him. You know, if you hear people quoting him and you hear, that that's the source, you need to be cautious of that. When Hindus reach true liberation, they no longer have to reincarnate. So in both cases, to be liberated is to have a form of God in control, either yourself as God or other controlling you, essentially being your own savior. You know, it, it it's all leads back to, as I said in the yoga podcast, um, it all is for their liberation, their ability to save themselves. And um, it's like everyone knows they need saving and they're just grasping it any way to be saved other than God. In one case, it's to realize the God in you. And in another, it's to allow a God to take control of you. Either way, it's completely unbiblical and demonic because the quote-unquote God that's going to take control is a demon. And um, we're not gods, so <laughs> sorry to tell you, you're not going to save yourself. You can't, uh, you can't save yourself. Christianity is not cohesive with this view because, for one, we aren't gods, and for two, we aren't to open ourselves up to be possessed or used. You can't be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and a demon, and it's contrary to what many hyper-charismatics tell you, because they try and tell you that everybody's got demons and that you need to be delivered from them. But it's probably a future podcast that we will have to talk about that one in, because that's pretty in-depth. What's more, we can't save ourselves. We absolutely need a Savior, and there's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. Not the Ascended Master, that some claim he was, or the Good Prophet, I mean, he is a good prophet, but that's not all he is. He's God. He is the God-man that the Bible explicitly speaks of. You can't look to any other definition of Jesus and think it's the same person. And a lot of people out there say Jesus, and they don't mean Jesus of the Bible. That's why we need to know scripture. We need to know who he is so that we can understand when people are talking wrongly. It's not about knowing all of these um 
wrong ideologies and knowing all of the things that other people say. It's the more that we know scripture, the more that when we hear these things, we go, yeah, that's not right. So I know that was a whole lot not about the Kundalini, but it explains more than you would think. So let's get into what the Kundalini is. In Hinduism, it means a coiled snake. This is a form of divine feminine energy, or Shakti, believed to be located at the base of the spine in the Muladhara. It is believed to be a force or power associated with the divine feminine or the formless aspect of the goddess. This energy in the body, when cultivated and awakened through tantric practice, such as movements and positions or breathing and meditation, is believed to lead to spiritual liberation. You know, we've been leading up to this. You know, we've talked about um, chakras and how it goes from the base of the spine up through your third eye, which would be located in your forehead. And, um, and the nadis, which are pathways for that energy to move through. Well, now it's talking about the energy source is uh, a d feminine, divine snake coiled at the base of your spine. Kundalini is associated with Parvati or Adi Parashakti, the supreme being in Shaktism, and with multiple goddesses. It has since then been adopted into other forms of Hinduism as well as modern spirituality and New Age, New, new Thought. Unfortunately, it's, in, um, it's, it's out there. It's everywhere right now. It goes as far as um, there are people who are in the New Apostolic Reformation, and um, there is a certain group who believe in being drunk in the spirit and all of the things that I am going to be talking about. And um, there's a video of them, and they're making fun of the Holy Spirit and saying um, that they have the Kundalini in them and that they're going everywhere with the Kundalini as that their power source. And um, whether they're joking or not, um, it, it's ridiculous and it's a mockery because they're laughing about it and acting like that's, oh yeah, we know it's the Kundalini. And, um, and they know what's being said. And a lot of them are still just oblivious and um, not looking to scripture to see what is true and right and good. So, they say that the kundalini is at the base of your spine and through all of these practices, you're trying to work that spirit energy, um, whatever you want to call it, up your chakras, through your nadis, and open your third eye. It's referred to as the gate that leads to the inner realms and spaces of higher consciousness. It's regarded as the eye of consciousness. When you open your third eye, you're liberated. You are said to find your divinity, know your divinity, or are empowered by the divine feminine. Kundalini awakenings, as they call it, are said to occur by a variety of methods. Many systems of yoga focus on awakening kundalini through meditation, pranayama, breathing, the practice of asana, and chanting of mantras. I have to say there's a huge rise in chanting and mantras in the church these days. It's totally bizarre. 
Um, people like Heidi Baker, among others, who say the same words over and over and over again. People say you need to focus on one word and repeat it over and over and to focus on and meditate on them. But that's not biblical meditation. That is uh, a Hindu meditation. But Matthew 6, 7 through 8 says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We aren't to worship God the same way as the pagans do. I say it all the time. Um, I'm not going to stop saying it because it's so important. We also aren't supposed to do anything to open ourselves up to spirits. That goes for any kind of work to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We don't have to make him indwell us. We don't have to help him indwell us. We don't have to do things to open ourselves up to him. Upon salvation, he takes up residence in us. We don't have to do anything to allow him. We don't have to call him. If we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit. We already have him. We don't need to keep asking him to come. Kundalini yoga is one form of yoga. It derives its name from its focus upon the awakening of the kundalini energy through regular practices of mantra, tantra, yantra, and asanas. Yes, I keep saying asanas, like the yoga positions. Um, the kundalini experience is frequently reported to be a distinct feeling of electric current running along the spine. I want you to remember that part. Um, that it talks about feeling of electric cur current running through you. Because in the next episode, that's going to be something that I talk about a lot. So this is another part that just got me. Like when I was researching it and um, looking, at, looking through this, you know, um, the things that run through certain circles and all are linked together, um, it's just amazing to watch other religions doing the exact same thing. And we know that the Holy Spirit's different. God's different. They're not going to look the same. Um, so it says it can be awakened through the initiation of Shaktipat, which is the transfer of spiritual energy from guru to student. That part makes me think of all of these pastors, teachers, preachers, so-called apostles and prophets laying hands on someone and they fall down and start shaking or laughing, or people like Benny Hinn waving his coat at people and the whole crowd falls down. Um, it, there, there are so many people who do this that um, it's absolutely bizarre to watch. So many of them gesture at or blow on people and large groups of people fall over. Um, people like Brian Simmons says he walked into a supermarket and everybody fell down, or he had a group of kids fall down at a school that he went past. Um, it's just crazy. There are a ton of videos out there of other cultures manifesting the same way that um, so many so-called Christians say that they're manifesting, and it's really frightening to watch. Yogapedia says in order to safely experience kundalini awakening, the yogi must open the channels of the subtle body through which kundalini will travel. If the person in whom kundalini awakens is not prepared, the power of this energy can cause inner chaos and confusion. In addition to careful yogic practice, 
Kundalini awakening is believed to occur as the result of trauma, drug use, prolonged stress, or near-death experience, among other things. When preparing for the Kundalini awakening, the yogi experiences a change in consciousness that leads to health, wellness, and a feeling of bliss and oneness with the universe, a state known as samadhi, the eighth and final limb in the Eightfold Path of Yoga. This is what it says, but when you listen to people talk about their experiences with the kundalini, it's it's never blissful or happy. Um, they may have feelings of euphoria, but when you hear them talk about it as a whole, it is not happy or blissful or something that I would ever want to have to experience. There may be periods that they feel that, but they talk about health problems, darkness, and unrest. These are the same people promoting and teaching it. So many talk about the dangers and at the same time talk about the need to keep doing it. Like they can't reach the thing that they're seeking. It's like a carrot dangling in front of them and they can never get to it. Or it isn't as fulfilling as they thought it would be. So it's like a constant striving for more um, because it's never enough. I know of people who have happily allowed what they said were gods or goddesses to possess and use them. And they all have a similar thing in common. That is insanity to some degree. Depression, anxiety, um, a lot of time blackouts and lost time. But they also have these crazy highs, like these euphoric highs. If the kundalini awakening is believed to occur as a result of bad stuff happening, that says something in itself right there, doesn't it? Especially when you look at the side effects or the kriyas from having an awakening, quote-unquote. The kriyas are said to be releases of kundalini energy. It's interesting that in videos of people after having their awakening, it looks just like so many hyper-charismatic churches out there. Especially when you look at like their fire tunnels and stuff like that. People making weird animal noises and acting drunk. Twitching, writhing on the floor, laughing non-stop. Barking like a dog, uh, when someone's head is shaking uncontrollably or the random jerks that look exactly like the Hindu videos, it's absolutely bizarre. It makes you wonder, like, why would they think that this is the Holy Spirit? If you know what the Bible says, and the Bible says, you know, self-control is uh, part of the fruit of the Spirit, or you look at the fact that even things like um, speaking in tongues has rules and you know so does prophesying has rules these people completely disregard them in the church but you see people in other religions doing the same thing some light symptoms of an awakening are said to be a spiritual connection with the divine bathed in bliss and boundless love periods of oneness where your compassion for humanity increases Tapping into extrasensory abilities or developing extraordinary gifts. Speaking in tongues, prophetic abilities, pleasurable sensations pulsate through your body. You're inspired to make big life-altering decisions, synchronicity, or meaningful miraculous coincidences. You have profound insights into your behavior and past experiences. Your empathic abilities strengthen and you can feel everything at a profound level. 
you keep receiving a big cosmic download of information. This is what the NAR hypercharismatics say. These are all the same things. I mean, I hear this all the time from them. When we know that a fruit of the Spirit self-control, that makes you question the things that we see in the church that are identical. The downloading of information is something that we see people claiming in the Christian church. I mean, Brian Simmons said that he got downloads. People like Sarah Young, the writer of Jesus Calling, says that she would sit and wait for Jesus to tell her what to say and then write it. There are others who say the same thing. I mean, there's like a list of people who speak about it the same way. It is interesting, though, because she has revised them so many times. Like, did God not get it right the first time? There are occultists and so-called Christians alike who proclaim automatic writing or so-called downloads from another source. Um, it, it actually happens more often than you would think. There are what they call dark symptoms, too. Experiencing intense involuntary shaking of the body that can be alarming. It says your nervous system becomes hypersensitive to external stressors, light, TV violence, loud noises, and shuts down or craves total solitude. You struggle to sleep properly. You experience sudden and shocking moments of ego death, which they say is like you feeling yourself dying like you never were. You have visual disturbances like hallucinations. You experience intense heat, vibrations, or electricity surge through your body. These sound strikingly similar to Todd White talking about his encounter with the Holy Spirit, or Heidi Baker, or Bill Johnson, Chris Valaton, so many others. They talk about being lifted up and thrown, being electrocuted, being thrown to the floor and unable to move, violent shaking, feeling like they're dying. But that's the next episode. We're going to go into that more. Kundalini says it feels like you're having a bad drug trip while sober. You struggle to distinguish what's real from imagined, which is psychosis. You feel like you're going crazy, feeling shattered or fragmented, dreaming of snakes or seeing snakes everywhere, feeling raw and extremely vulnerable like a newborn child, manic and exuberant energy or chronic fatigue sometimes alternating. Lucid dreams are another symptom, seeing lights and hearing music that aren't there. Again, hallucinations, tapping into your past life experiences, entering spontaneous poses or yogic breathing, developing a savior complex, feeling intense grief for the planet and all suffering beings, out-of-body experiences, panic attacks and feelings of terror, developing strange, undiagnosable physical symptoms that may manifest as autoimmune conditions, digestive issues, nausea, etc. When you look into this stuff, even the gurus say it's dangerous. All this to say, there's a real threat out there that's not a seen threat. At least the threat is not seen, but the effects are all too real. Real spirits that can wreak havoc on humans. Real forces that can look good, feel good, and make you want them that are not God. People in the New Age and into occult practices say a lot of the same things as some of the people in these so-called Christian groups. So many things that look innocent like yoga, calling it holy doesn't make it so. Like meditation, not the same kind seen in scripture. 
can be super dangerous. Just because it looks pretty doesn't mean it's good. Just because it has Christianese attached to it doesn't mean it's Christian. And just because you use the name of Jesus doesn't mean it's the same one. Now I'm going to define some of the practices they use to open up to the spirits. When we look at what meditation is, we see meditation that is non-biblical is harder to define than biblical meditation. Every time meditation is talked about in the Bible, it talks about meditating on God's word, filling your mind with God's word, which requires thought. We are to use our brains to study and ponder God in his word. But anytime you hear anything about other kinds of meditation, it's generally emptying your mind or repetitious thought of one single word. Um, It's hypnotic, you know. So a biblical definition of meditation is close or continued thought, the turning or revolving of a subject in the mind, serious contemplation. When we come to any kind of non-biblical explanation or definition, it varies so much it's hard to explain. Some need taking a word and focusing on nothing but that word. Sometimes it's an object. Sometimes it's emptying your mind of all thought, which opens your mind up for demonic influence. It actually, all of that does. Um, Waiting to hear from God, a God, a spirit, or your true self, your God self. Um, Those are all dangerous, you know. When you look at what the Bible says about meditation, it's always taking God's word and like thinking about it and pondering it and sitting in it and not, um, it's it's not emptying your mind or uh, a hypnotic kind of meditation. So a mantra is a sacred utterance, a numinous sound, a syllable, word, or group of words believed by practitioners to have religious, magical, or spiritual powers. One you probably know as Om. They say it is the vibration of God or the universe. Some mantras have a syntactic structure and literal meaning, while others don't. I've seen a lot of people in Christian groups using this technique. God says we're not to do as the pagans do, and not to worship him how they worship their gods. So many say we need to take back practices from the New Age or um, different religions, but they weren't practices that we need to take back. They were never ours. They're not godly to begin with, and they're not ours to take back. God's not going to make them holy. When I first started talking about yoga, I had someone tell me that, yes, yoga was made to be a Hindu practice, But what we do in the West is actually asanas, which is a set of postures. Twitch, yes, that's correct. But that's what they do in the Hindu practice. Like, it's literally just part of their worship. As you saw earlier, they mention them as a part of the practice to awaken your kundalini and be liberated. It also is said that it can be done in Hinduism, an act of worship in and of itself without the rest of the things. Yogis say you don't have to meditate or say om or anything like that to be a partaker in Hindu holy practices. You just have to do the positions and you are partaking in their holy practices. There's a large list of things that are reported when people have what they call a kundalini awakening, which can range from euphoria to psychosis, 
Um, I just want you to know that sometimes it can feel good. Sometimes your experience says divine when in fact it isn't. And sometimes we say something's good, like calling something the Holy Spirit, when it doesn't fit the description God gave us for the Holy Spirit. If the fruit that will come from an encounter with him doesn't look the same as what it did in the Bible, we can say it's not him. When yogis or gurus, Hindu or New Age, talk about this, they all say it can be really dangerous and open you up to all kinds of demonic spiritual stuff. In the next episode, I'll be talking about some of the stuff that, um, why I correlate this with a lot of the, the Christian groups out there. They say it's like electricity flowing through you and you can't control it. Some say you feel like you aren't alone in your own body anymore and there's nothing you can do to make it go away. Except say the name of Jesus, strangely enough. The Holy Spirit is one person of the triune Godhead. He is the Holy Spirit. One thing that trips me out is when you hear certain people talk about encounters with Holy Spirit, quote unquote. They say that thing hit me. It's like, what thing hit you? Todd White says that, and it always makes me cringe. They talk about the Holy Spirit, or what they call Holy Spirit, like a force, and not like the third person of the triune Godhead. They talk about him like the world does, and not like the Bible. One guy says, the kundalini feels like an energy that isn't yours going up your spine, and exploding open your third eye. He talked about it being like he died and never was, like he was deleted from reality. He said he went through awful spiritual symptoms. Gurus even say you don't want to awaken it prematurely. Which, I mean, what does that even mean? Like, how do you know when you're ready or when it's premature? Not that I think anyone should do this, but it's a weird thing to say. They all seem to talk about it like it's really dangerous. And these aren't ex-yoga people. These aren't ex-yogis. These are people currently teaching yoga. Currently teaching it and encouraging others to awaken their kundalini and then telling them that it's also dangerous and you have to be really careful when you do it. This one guy talked about a forceful energy taking over. It sounds way too much like what some people say being baptized in the Holy Spirit is. One guy even said you can call it kundalini, but Christians call it the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's totally blasphemy right there. In every instance I could find in the Bible that talked about people falling in the presence of God, it was falling on their face to worship, falling on their face in reverence. There was no jerking or hysteria, and it wasn't an involuntary thing. They were coherent, and when they fell down before an angel or the Lord, they were helped up to hear what the Lord or an angel was saying to them. There are no places in the Bible where whole groups fell over and started laughing or or quacking, or screaming in reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, the only falling down and screaming I know of in the Bible is demonic possession, or as one person called it, demonizing. So, what then is this spirit that's making people say they were slain in the spirit? If the Bible is our plumb line, I believe it's upon each individual to take their experience to the Bible, to pray about it and search for answers. We're supposed to be searching scripture, and I know it takes time and effort, but we're supposed to want to know this God that we say we love so much, you know? 
we should want to study his word and want to um, understand if what we're doing is acceptable to him or not, because it's too easy to take in the information of the world and be entertained by the world and not to feed ourselves spiritually. Matthew seventeen fourteen through 18 says, When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. With the kundalini we see out of control, we see lunatics. Um, the Bible shows that's demonic. Luke four thirty three through 35 says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do you, we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. We see demons throw people down and make people crazy, but not once do we see that from the Holy Spirit. In Mark, when a man with a legion of demons who had superhuman strength, who screamed and gnashed himself with rocks, and who lived in the tombs was freed from demons, it says, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Mark 5.15 It says he was in his right mind when he was free from the demons. The chaos was when he was being demonized. The kundalini is simply a demonic spirit that people are opening themselves to. Masquerading is good, helpful, needed, and freeing. We see that with the kundalini and other demons come drunk in the spirit, laughing out of control, the kriyas. All of these things they say come from the awakening. It looks strikingly like many of the hyper-charismatic manifestations. And I'm not saying charismatic people um, are a problem. I'm not saying they're not saved or they're demon-possessed. I'm talking about hyper-charismatic and the new apostolic reformation. And even then, I'm not talking about every single one of them. Um, I'm just saying that it is, this is happening hugely in churches these days, or so-called churches these days, should I say. Luke 9, 38 through 42 says, And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, And it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. 
The spirit was seizing him, and he would scream, and it would throw him into convulsions. This this is what the kundalini looks like, and this is what so much looks like in hypercharismatic churches. I keep saying that, but um, this is dangerous, and it's not okay. The only time that I can think of that God made someone out of control, confused, or not in their right mind was Nebuchadnezzar. And he didn't follow God, though in the end he did acknowledge him. He continued to do as he pleased after that. This isn't somebody who's saved, and it doesn't say the Holy Spirit did this. Acts sixteen sixteen through 21 says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. God questions, says, Those who believe in a python spirit points to Acts 16.16, 16, where scripture refers to a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. The Greek term for divination in this verse is pythona. The origin of the Greek word is rooted in Greek mythology, which includes the story of Apollo slaying a serpent or dragon that dwelt in the region of Pytho and was said to have guarded the oracles of Delphi. It seems the local residents of Philippi in Acts 16 said this slave girl gained her powers through a spirit of Python, associating the mythological serpent with oracles in general. Paul freed this girl of the demon, angering the men taking advantage of her and leading to a lawsuit. Some attribute this python spirit to also be the kundalini. I don't think it's odd that they call it both, python and kundalini. I think it, it symbolizes the same thing, and that is a demonic entity. When you look at the symbol for the kundalini, it's the same symbol that is in the belly of Baphomet imagery, Satan's handiwork once again. I don't believe there's a certain spirit that is the python spirit. It seems to be that they used the word that best suited what was happening and the mythology that helped them understand what was being said. The devil has been called a serpent, and I believe it's another symbol to show it's, it is dark and not of God. In the Bible, a bronze serpent was used in the healing of God's people. God poured out his wrath on his rebellious people, and the bronze serpent was used to build the faith of the Israelites. They had to trust that God was telling them the truth and would heal them if they did as he commanded. He used a serpent because they were being saved from serpents, because there were serpents killing them. It was a shadow of Christ on the cross healing us from the wrath of God, taking it on himself. It became an idol to them, and in the end was smashed to pieces with other idols. The symbol for the kundalini is simply a cheap knockoff of that. 
Just like Satan takes things like the cross and flips it upside down to mock God, he took a symbol of Christ and his healing and gave it a demonic twist. He made a likeness that's truly evil. Spirits in the Church is the title of the episode I did with Jesse Goss when I was in Truthfully Awkward on this subject, and I think it fits well. The Kundalini is just a manifestation of an ungodly spirit, and at this point, we're seeing it throughout what we thought to be Christian circles. So many times I hear people in the church talking nonchalantly about doing practices that are simply occult practices. Things like yoga and mindfulness, numerology and angel cards, or destiny card readings. It's simply the occult with a Christian veneer. Deuteronomy 18, 9-14 says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. I understand the differences between the covenant and the Old Testament and the covenant in the New Testament, and that we have a a greater covenant now. But we're not supposed to be seeking after these things, and we're not supposed to be doing them. We're not supposed to look like those who do them either. That was part of why God tried to keep his people pure, and I think that reading the Old Testament, we can see that he still wants us to be pure. We need to know scripture so that we can accurately test the spirits, knowing what is of God and what is not. This doesn't say you can't contact spirits. It says don't. The spirit realm is dangerous. The practices are abominations. Going apart from God's word is going apart from God. The Bible doesn't save us, but it has instructions on how we are saved and who saves us, how to know him and know what he approves. It is God's instruction manual for life and death for that matter. It's his very word. That verse when it says interpret omens totally reminds me of all these people using prophecy cards and being obsessed with numbers. Um, We see people like Sean Fouch, you know, he is obsessed with numerology and, um, and the reading of omens. They are literally calling up the dead in their dead raising groups as if they, not the Lord, have the power to raise the dead. God's not going to look like and imitate what he says is an abomination. Deuteronomy 13, 1-8 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. 
But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or your wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known. Of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. The God to which they speak of does not resemble the God of the Bible. He sounds more like a pagan God. If we want to know his voice from an imposter, we are to know scripture, because that's how we hear him. When we read the Bible, we read the very words of God. We are to purge evil from among us, not embrace it or try to harness its energy. God's not a force for us to harness and use at will. Yoga and its practices are meant to open you up to demons. And when you do yoga, you're doing practices that were made by demons to pull you into demonic teachings. Yes, they do have power in some sense. They can mimic some things that God can do. Enough to pull you in and entice you. Enough to make you think it might be of God. 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. There are doctrines that are made by demons, and this is one of them, Yoga is made to embrace this doctrine, and no matter how much you want to or think you can detach the act from the religion, you can't. It's made for the demonic worship and opening yourself up to them. That's, that's what it's for. I pray that this was helpful, that you understand a bit more about the dangers of doing yoga. The kundalini is just another name for demon possession. In the next video... I will go more into depth on why I say the kundalini is in the church, but until then, be blessed.